Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L. On Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. And backing the blue. Now, here are your hosts, Captain Ed Mamet and Detective Kevin Schroeder. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Cop Talk. My name is Kevin Schroeder, retired NYPD detective. And my co-host, Captain Ed Mamet, is not here today. He is on some private mission. Uh, I don't even have clearance to know where his whereabouts are today. So, taking his place will be my producer, Joe Diamond. Joe, say hello. Hello, fellow Cop Talkers. So our guest today on Cop Talk is Peter Faselli. Peter is the author of the upcoming book, The Deadly Path, How Operation Fast and Furious and Bad Lawyers Armed Mexican Cartels, available now, pre-order on Amazon. He's also an NYPD 15-year veteran, retired from Bronx Homicide Task Force, and he did 20 years with the ATF and retired as a deputy assistant director with the ATF. During his career, Peter made over 1,200 arrests. He's known for developing complex investigations targeting armed gangs and criminal investigations, including the Mexican cartels. Peter Faselli, welcome to Cop Talk. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Peter, why don't you let our audience know a little bit more about your background? Sure. Grew up in the, the Bronx and Yonkers area. Um, you know, took the test to become an NYPD cop when I was in 10th grade. Back in those days, you had to be 16 and a half to take the test. That's when I took it. Um, got hired when I just turned 20, came on as a housing cop before the merge. It was funny because when you show up that first day, you know, everybody else was sent into the auditorium. I was sent up to the 14th floor. <laughs> I had no idea what I was walking into. Um, so I found out, you know, that I was going to housing. First, I was really disappointed, but it turned out to be a great job. Good people. Um, so I was walked the beat in the Bronx when I got out of the academy for a while. Um, after a few years, went into anti-crime, which was great. A lot of fun. Went then into the bureau. Um was in the PSA detective squad when Giuliani merged all of the departments together. And I wound up real short time in the four, six uh, rip and then the four, seven squad, and then the four, five squad for a while when they inherited that big chunk of the 43rd precinct over there by Westchester square. And then eventually um, got pulled into Bronx homicide when NYPD had finally come to the realization that they had a gang problem. So I spent my last almost five years with the NYPD in the Bronx Homicide Squad, mostly working on federal cases. And then after that time, uh, it was June of uh, 2001, I jumped ship and went over to ATF as a special agent. Spent some time there. Bounced around after that. In 2007, I got promoted and then kind of put my destiny in ATF's hands. So I took different assignments based on different promotions. But it was a good run. 35 years in total. Yeah. Getting back to the academy days, it came on in 87, I came on in 85. Um, I think first day in the academy, they said whether you were city, transit, or housing, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get city, although some people say maybe you're fortunate enough to get housing or transit at the time. But, uh, but yeah, I remember those days, and that's when you found out where you're going. And then, of course, then the merge happened on the Giuliani, and we're all NYPD. Um, so now, Peter, you're a survivor of cancer, lung cancer from 9-11. You had lung cancer from 9-11. Uh, is that accurate? Yeah, I, I was on the, I was down there on the day of the attacks. I got there right after the first plane hit, you know, did like everybody else did. I mean, we all participated looking for our brothers and sisters and fellow New Yorkers. 
but it was actually many years later when I was um, a special agent in charge of ATF's Miami Field Division. I uh, wound up coming down with lung cancer in my right lung. They took out the lung. Thank God they took out all the cancer with it. So uh, I didn't have to go through radiation and chemo. So I, you hate to say that you were lucky that you got lung cancer, but in a lot of ways, I was lucky. You know, it didn't have any spread. So I'm still here five years cancer free um, last year. So, but uh, oh, cool. yeah. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for asking. Now, are you, are you in the uh, Mount Sinai program, 9 11 program? I'm in the program. I'll be honest with you. Um, you know, once you leave New York City, you're in the National Provider Network. Uh, and it's it's vastly different. I've heard great things about the program in New York City, you know, um, but once you leave the greater New York area, the program kind of sucks. Um, you know, it, oh, it, and, interesting. Yeah. And it's it's really made me um, kind of open my eyes to I think and I'm not saying that I know this firsthand, but what I imagine some of our veterans go through where you're begging for care and you're struggling to find appointments. So I, I think, you know, um, they certainly could have did a better job picking a vendor. Um, they used to be yeah. full under LHI. Logistics Health Incorporated, they were okay. Uh, now it's under a company called Sedgwick and it's a train wreck. So, I mean, truthfully, I'm, I pay oh. out of pocket for my visits now because it's so hard to get them to give you pre-approvals that um, it's just easier to make sure that you're healthy instead of missing appointments, you know? Yeah, I'm, so, I'm in the program here in New York, you know, the Mount Sinai program, but it's I'm sorry to hear that uh, with uh, people outside of New York that maybe that's what's going on, which is not good. Um. Peter, before getting into Fast and Furious, what are some of the other key moments uh, of your law enforcement career? Well, it was a great run. Like I said before we went live, you know, the best memories I have now is looking back at the patrol days. And, and you know how it is. You were a detective. When you're on patrol, the crappiest day that you have, when it's over, it's over. You come back to work the next day, you got a clear slate. Um, right. So, you know, I enjoyed that. I had some really good cases. One was um, the sex money murder case, which went after a gangbanger named Peter Olock, who was the first founding member of the sex money murder bloods. Uh, it was my first taste mm. of work in federal law enforcement. Um, that was a fun case. Took a couple of years to make. In the end, there was 51 defendants. Uh, Rolock himself, we put him away for life, plus 105 years in the supermax in Florence. Supposedly, he was sitting between the blind sheik and Robert Hansen. Um, had a few other homicides, like there was a murder of a retired detective named Donald Pagani. Uh, it happened down in Hunts Point. Real interesting case. I worked it with the Red Rum guys. I don't know if you remember those, that team, Red Rum. Yeah. Great, great yeah. folks to work with. I learned so much from them. Um, but eventually they wound up, and I just had a small role in, in taking some of the defendants uh, federally for gun crime um, violations, mostly girlfriends to flip them against the boyfriends. It helped locate the, the folks that went down to Columbia. But um, so those were some of the, the really interesting cases I got to work on in the NYPD. And then there were, you know, anytime a cop got shot, uh, you know, obviously it's all hands on deck. So, I mean, it was, it was a great run. But as far as like the bigger memorable cases, those are probably the two big ones during my time in NYPD. You know, and then, of course, we never forget the ones where a little kid is killed or something. Those always stick with you, uh, you know, till, you, till you're gone. So, but no, it was a great, great place to learn being a cop in the NYPD. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Joe? So, Peter, give us an overview of Operation Fast and Furious. And, you know, for people out there who are not, may not have you know, followed the story some years ago, this, this is a real operation, you know, from the Justice Department named after the, the movie franchise. Sure, sure. And I, like I said, I, I wrote a book about it. And there were other books written about Fast and Furious itself. So my book doesn't really do that. It, it focuses on how we kind of got there. And it was weird because I had worked a bunch of gun cases in New York. I was actually the person who started this program called Operation Trigger Lock, 
which was where we went after armed felons and charged them federally with federal gun crimes. So by the time I had gone out to Arizona, I had been involved in easily 150 to 200 um, federal firearms prosecutions with some really good assistant U.S. attorneys from the Southern District of New York. So when I got out to Arizona, um, I noticed that things were vastly different. I, it, you know, I can give you some examples. But Fast and Furious didn't happen until about three years after I got out there. And Fast and Furious was a case where ATF agents allowed for gun dealers to sell firearms to people that they knew were buying them to give to other people that shouldn't have them, the cartels specifically. So rather than stop cars and ask questions and build a case the way we had done it everywhere else in the country and the way I had done it so many times in New York, um, they let the guns ride off into the sunset, knowing they would be trafficked to Mexico. And then their goal was to trace the guns because ATF traces guns, not just in the United States, but in many instances globally, and figure out, you know, um, a way to take down a cartel um, trafficking network through these traces. But what was maddening about it was, um, you know, some of the straw purchases, one straw purchaser alone purchased over 600 guns in that case. And it's like, as as an outsider, because I was not in that group, um, we started to push back against our manager who was involved in you know pushing this case because we realized that any one of those guns at some point could have been turned back on some cop or some kid or some old lady. And then um, in around Christmas time of 2010, that's exactly what happened. Border Patrol agent named Brian Terry was doing patrol out in the desert looking for drug robbery crews. Um, him and his team came upon a drug robbery crew. Uh, Brian was, he was shot and killed with a gun. So uh, guns recovered on the scene. One of them traced back to Operation Fast and Furious. So at that point, um, another agent who was actually in that group blew the whistle on Operation Fast and Furious itself. And as appalling as it sounds, the um, U.S. Attorney's Office that would not prosecute dozens and dozens of actual firearms traffickers, there were rumblings that they were going to prosecute John Dodson, the whistleblower. And that's when I myself said that was a bridge too far. I mean, I didn't know what was going on in that group, but here they turned a blind eye to so many different firearms trafficking cases. Um, it, to me, was unacceptable that they would even discuss indicting a whistleblower. So, um but the case itself involved uh, over 2,000 firearms being trafficked to Mexico um, with ATF's knowledge. And then, you know, then there was a, a case that was somewhat not part of Operation Fast and Furious, but related only, and that was driven by the same prosecutor who was the architect of Operation Fast and Furious. That involved the guy who was making over, um, to our knowledge, over 800 hand grenades for the Sinaloa cartel, and the U.S. Attorney's Office wouldn't let us arrest them. They ordered us to let them go. And so that's some of the things that I really get into the, the weeds on in the book is the grenade smuggler and the many years of cases that we developed that led up to Fast and Furious that the U.S. Attorney's Office turned a blind eye to. I mean, basically, they gave a pass to firearms traffickers who were selling guns to the cartels who were, in essence, I mean, narco terrorists. You know, the stuff that was going on down there that we would be briefed on was stuff that's akin to what you see in um, the Middle East right now. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. You know, why would the higher-ups, you know, especially the Justice Department, why would they let it go on this long? Is it like, do they, 
in their head do they think well it's collateral damage or you know it's, you know there's a, there's a, there's a bigger case to be to be made here like why why let it slip out of control like that it was a combination of two things in my opinion and again i wasn't an insider i wasn't involved in the planning of that investigation you had lazy and incompetent prosecutors not everyone in that us attorney's office i'm just saying the people who were involved in prosecuting gun crimes in the phoenix us attorney's office were 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 just inept um, you also had people in the Department of Justice and in ATF who were looking at things through just, uh, I mean, I can't even, here I ha- I've had over a decade to think about what were they actually thinking. The only thing I know is that there was an interest in um, changing one of the rules that revolves around firearms purchases along the southwest border. When you go into a gun store, if you buy two handguns, um, anywhere in the country, like if you go, if you buy two two shot Derringers, you know, capable of firing four bullets, um, if both were fully loaded, you have to fill out a form called a multiple sale form. For rifles, you didn't have to fill out anything of that nature. No multiple sale form for rifles. Um, in Arizona, it wasn't unusual during my time down there in the beginning. And again, these cases didn't get prosecuted, which made it appalling. Where you'd have someone walk in with a bag full of money and go to a gun dealer and say, "Hey, I want to buy all the AK-47 knockoff rifles that you have on the on the shelves." So, I mean, the AK-47 that, that's available in the U.S. is not a real AK-47 because an AK-47 is is an actual assault rifle, which means you pull the trigger and hold it, and it's going to keep shooting. These are semi-automatic rifles that look like AK-47s. But you'd have people go in and buy every single one that the, the gun dealers had on the shelves, and that form was not required to be filled out, which meant that unless the dealer contacted ATF, which in my experience, they almost invariably always did, you wouldn't know that there was a scheme going on. So one of the things that I recall was while Fast and Furious was happening is the folks would get somewhat giddy that this looks great for us being able to implement the man letter three which is that form. So now the way it exists partially, I think as a result of Fast and Furious is along the border states, if you go into a gun store and buy two rifles, now it you do have to fill out that form, which is sent to ATF. Um, so ATF will know someone came in and bought more than one rifle. Again, not everybody who buys more than one gun, be it a pistol or a rifle is up to no good, uh, but it, it gave ATF a launching point to, you know, to at least nowhere perhaps to start looking and maybe asking some questions. Um, but that, I think, was one of the driving factors as to why folks in DOJ were so happy about what was going on, completely turning a blind eye to the potential for violence when you're giving firearms of that nature to bad people. Now, Peter, you, you very bravely you testified before Congress about this. And then um, the Justice Department came after you and you know you fought back to clear your name. To, um, to, I know you're, I'm sure you're bound by the settlement agreement, but tell us about your case against the feds and, and the outcome. Yeah, I, I can't discuss certain parts like what was discussed in that room. What I can say is I did not leave that settlement a penny richer than I was when I went in there. Um, I wouldn't be violating the agreement to say I left there not having to look over my shoulder anymore. Um, but what you know what happened was after I blew the whistle, actually, a couple things. One is before there was actual testimony in front of Congress that was televised on C-SPAN, it's still on YouTube, um, there were depositions. So I sat down for the first deposition with the um, people from Senator Chuck Grassley's staff and Daryl Issa from the Republican side. And then on the Democrat side, it was Elijah Cummings and uh, Senator Patrick Leahy. So all four, they call it the four corners. They were all in the room when I was deposed. So there were about 12 people in the room. 
And it started with, hey, Mr. Fraselli, we appreciate you being here. This is how good government works. You know, we, we protect whistleblowers. We respect whistleblowers. So I, 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 the deposition lasted roughly six hours, and it was held about six blocks away from where my office was in Phoenix at the time. So I, I was honest. I didn't hold anything back. Uh, you know, look, I, I learned my values as a cop in New York, you know, and, and the truth matters and your reputation matters. So I clung to the truth and I was defending my reputation. But as I walked back to the office, I got a phone call um, from an AUSA. I won't mention because they still work at that, that office saying, hey, Pete, everything that you just said at the um, in that deposition was relayed to the United States attorney, who is the chief federal law enforcement officer for the state of Arizona. Uh, and he wasn't happy. So I was like, OK, so you know, interesting that the congressional staff and I would assume at the time it was probably um, Leahy staff, um, you know, would would call the U.S. attorney and say everything that I told him in that room, because there was a lot and it didn't make that office look good. And, and look, I wasn't sugarcoating what ATF did either. So anyway, fast forward, the um, I get the subpoena to testify at the actual hearing. Um, and the night before I testify, I get a call from a unit chief at the U.S. Attorney's Office regarding that case I spoke of briefly uh, a little while ago about the grenades. And in that case, we wanted to arrest the trafficker, but the U.S. Attorney's Office wouldn't let us. So it was clear that they were going to try to turn that around and say that we didn't want to arrest that trafficker. So I basically they're threatening me, um, you know, before I even set foot in the testimony the night before, which kind of upset me. Luckily, I was able to document that that was all um you know, lies, uh, because we, when we were trying to prosecute that grenade smuggler, we called the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York for help. We, we were also dealing with the government of Mexico, but they were basically trying to smear my reputation. And then finally, the U.S. Attorney himself sent out an email to his whole chain of command, um, basically saying anybody running into Pete Forselli and his family, even if you see him having a cup of coffee with his family on the weekend, it will be reported to me through your chain of command immediately. So another AUSA, um, reached out to me and said, hey, man, can I meet you for coffee, ironically? And when we sat down, he handed me a printed copy of the U.S. attorney's email. So I, at this point, I knew I was a marked man. Um, and then during my actual testimony, the chief of the criminal division for the U.S. attorney's office um, told the uh, director of ATF and all the other folks that were watching the testimony that I was perjuring myself, which was also a lie. And I was able to prove that that was a lie. So, I mean, but I, it took years of OIG investigations to clear my name, roughly four years, which was, you know, stressful. And then, you know, obviously um, it nearly bankrupted me because you were paying for lawyers. I was surveilled. So I didn't want to talk to lawyers on the phone. So I would fly back and forth. You know, so travel costs too. It got to a point where my wife and I had $20, $26 in the bank to our name and mortgage payments that were due. It was brutal. Yeah, that's some story, Peter. You know, uh, how can we stop from something like this from happening again? You know, it's 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 kind of sad, you know, when you think about what's going on right now, Kevin, like even watching the news, you hear about, you know, allegations of government misconduct. You saw there were IRS whistleblowers that blew the whistle on right. uh, allegations with, the, with regard to the U.S. attorney's office decision making process with the Biden case. Well, right. they're going through similar things that I went through back when I testified. I mean, government needs to be held accountable and they should Look, there are whistleblower protection laws, but they're pretty much toothless and they're ignored by the bureaucracy. So, but I mean, I think a couple of things need to happen. One is um, folks who do things that they shouldn't be doing in government need to be held accountable. And whether that's being fired or put in jail or whatever it is, it, it needs to happen, sure. number one. 
And then number two is good. Look, one of the reasons I survived my ordeal was I had some people high up in ATF chain of command who said to me, hey, Pete, as long as you're telling the truth, we have your back. Um, and those those men who I love to this day kept their words. Um, there's no pat on the back for them. You know, uh, so, I mean, I think that if government managers were rewarded for protecting people who speak the truth to keep government honest, maybe you'd see more of that rather than, hey, let's let this guy swing. Um, you know, so, I mean, sure. uh, what's going on right now sure. is very much akin to what I dealt with over a decade ago. Yeah. Joe? So, so Peter, so, um, you've come up, up against the cartels numerous times after through your career. Um, how the border crisis is, as you know, is, 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 is soaring out of control. How, how big a threat are these cartels to national security? And then like, what that, you know, what, what do we have to do to, to crack down on them? Oh, they're a tremendous threat. And, you know, let's look what's going on. And it's, it's become so political, but I'm going to talk about this from a strictly apolitical perspective. I traveled to Mexico a lot when I was in Phoenix, I'd gone down to Mexico city. I would go to Hermosillo, various other cities. I dealt with Mexican cops, some of them you couldn't really trust. Some of them we, we did develop a trust with. I mean, imagine going to work and not knowing whether you're going to get shot by the guy in front of you who you're trying to arrest or a guy behind you who's on the payroll. Um, so, I mean, it's it's pretty frightening what's going on in Mexico. And like I said before, a lot of what's happening there is akin to what goes on in the Middle East. When I sat in Phoenix, I used to get briefed on um, things that happened. We'd get the National Drug Intelligence Center, Boltons, for example. And it would it wasn't unusual to get imagery of people swing hung from bridges to send messages to the um to, to elected officials, to the police or to other cartel members. It was not unusual. I remember one where there was um several people were hung up in a shower and skinned, presumably skinned alive, uh, but their bodies were found skinned by cartel folks to send messages. Um, mass graves, beheaded bodies. So I mean, this is the kind of carnage that happened south of the border, right? Um now. What I remember back in my time is the Beltran Leva cartel kind of fizzled out. The Sinaloans blew up. The, um, the Zetas were prominent, then they got quieter. But now there's these other cartels, La Familia Michoacan and the uh, CJNG, which is the the, um, uh, the the cartel in Jalisco. They're literally patrolling large swaths of Mexico in armored vehicles, in, in caravans of armored vehicles, in uniforms with 50 caliber rifles, belt-fed machine guns. They're basically like an army operating within the country of Mexico. And our border is very, very porous. Um, despite, you know, these politicians, they like to go down to these big ports of entry, which are generally pretty secure, but they're not, but they don't do their, their um, photo ops, at, you know, in the desert near uh, San Luis Rio, Colorado, which is not quite as well secured, where a lot of people are coming through. You have that. You have people coming from the countries in the Middle East and from Africa and other parts of the country. Look, many of them are probably coming here for a better life. Some of them are coming here with other things in mind. You have fentanyl, which was unheard of when I worked in Phoenix not that long ago. That's now killed over 100,000 Americans. And the precursor chemicals are coming in from China. You know, a couple of years back, 2015, I got to sit through a, a presentation at the Army War College, um, which was about China. And China has a 100-year plan that they've enacted to put the United States behind them, and they want to supersede us as the world's superpower. Um, they're sending these chemicals to Mexico. They watch the news. They know that those chemicals are being used and smuggled across and killing our people. So, I mean, there are so many reasons to secure the border and to fix our immigration system, but nobody wants to do it because it's politically incorrect in many circles. 
And it, they don't want to insult our neighbor to the south, which is Mexico, who is not keeping security in their country under control. And you have a president down there uh, in Obrador who's very, very sympathetic to the cartels. So, I mean, securing the border makes perfect sense. And it's not racist. It's truly a national security issue. And it might save some lives. Like I said, I mean, um, you know, have all the smuggling going on. The weird thing, the even tobacco smuggling, like I know New York has a tobacco issue. The taxes are so high in New York. The Jalisco cartel last year made $4 billion in tobacco smuggling alone. Right. Wow. That's not even including their narcotic smuggling, their human smuggling. Right. I mean, the cartels have grown into these conglomerates and they're global. I mean, their 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 footprints are not just in Mexico and the United States. They are global conglomerates right now. Is it safe to say that uh, you you agree that our borders are open? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And look, I'm not I'm not talking about from what I watch on the news. I'm talking about it from experience, talking to folks right. that still work That's down there, right. even from being down there myself. My wife and I went on a trip. To, um, to Arizona um, a little over a year ago. And you could still see these folks running across I-8, you know, and which is not right on the border, by the way. I mean, you're you're pretty far into the United States by the time yeah. you reach I-8. It's anybody who says the border is secured is lying. Yes, I agree. We agree. Right, Joe? Yeah, absolutely. So, so Peter, uh, let's talk about, tell us about your work these days as a writer and public speaker on leadership. Sure. Um, well, I never really wanted to write a book. I never set out to write a book, to be honest with you. Um, but towards towards the end of my career, what would happen was I'd, I'd see young agents like I, I ended my career as the chief of the academy and overall training, which was invigorating to see these new fresh faces. They weren't ground down by the politics and the, and the crap uh, of, you know, bureaucracy. And every now and then and, you know, go some people, they take the job. They're just happy to have a job. Every now and then you'd find somebody who does some research on the agency and they would be like surprised, like, wait a minute, you were a whistleblower and now you're a deputy assistant director. Like, you know, what really happened down there? But ATF and the Department of Justice wouldn't let us talk about it. So I felt bad that you'd have these new agents coming in who thought that ATF as an, as an entity was arming the cartels rather than just realizing it was a small group of people and in one group wasn't even all the agents in Phoenix. And, and Kevin, you understand it from, from our time on the job. You know, when a cop did something bad, we all wore that stain. Well, for right, for quite some time, Phoenix agents wore the stain of that small group of agents and, you know, that, that were involved in that case. And in the greater law enforcement profession, all ATF agents armed the cartels. So it was it was important to set the record straight for them, but also for the American public, because if you watch the news back then, you if you watch Fox News, you heard the Republican version of what happened. If you watch CNN and the others, you heard the Democrat version. Neither of them really told the actual tale of how we got there. And if you don't um, know history, you're bound to repeat history. So that's what caused me to write the book. As far as public speaking, I talk a bit at the 9-11 Memorial Museum about, you know, PTSD and the importance of that it's OK to not be OK and it's OK to get help and the importance of sticking together um, and some leadership lessons learned there, too. But with um, Fast and Furious, you know, um, look, there are a lot of leadership lessons to be learned there as well, especially about holding folks accountable, but more so about holding yourself accountable. And what I learned through my career is the higher you move up in an organization, the more eyes are on you. So it's arrogant to think that when you're doing something stupid um, that people don't know. But some folks, they just kind of lose sight of that. And as they promote higher and higher and higher, they think they're smarter than everybody and they do dumb things. How could our audience get, a, get in contact with you? Well, they can, well, first off, I have a pretty active presence on LinkedIn. I created a LinkedIn profile back in the day because I thought I would need a job after oh, I blew the whistle. But it turns out to just be a good mechanism to communicate with folks. 
Um, I have a website. It's www.peterjforselli.com. And um, yeah, those are the best ways to get a hold of me, you know, at this right now. When is the book coming out? The book will hit the shelves on March 5th. Uh, it's available for pre-order now uh, on Amazon. And I know some folks don't like to order off Amazon for whatever reason. It's also available on uh, Barnes and Noble and some other sites. Um, so if you, if you Google the, the Deadly Path, How Operation Fast and Furious and Bad Lawyers Armed Mexican Cartels, it's pretty easy to find. Um, and looks, I, I, I really think folks would be uh, surprised to see what really happened in that scandal. And I'd love to hear what yeah. they think once they read the book. Yeah, Peter, I look forward to uh, purchasing your book myself and reading it. And um, once again, folks, uh, Peter Faselli, a retired MIPD, former ATF agent, and get his book, upcoming book is The Deadly Pad. So make sure you get your copy from Amazon. Peter Faselli, I'd like to thank you for being a guest today on Top Talk. And folks, if you like what you hear, please subscribe. You could also follow us on Twitter, at Top Talk WABC. That's at Top Talk WABC. Until next time, thank you, Peter. God bless America and stay safe out there. Thank you. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L. On Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024.